Mark. Hey, Kevin. How you doing? Good. Um, what show are we doing? We're doing Help Is Not On The Way, Kevin. And uh, I'm Kevin Bauman. And I'm Mark Dustin. That's great. And we have uh, we have uh, we have a couple of great topics today. We we're, we're going to talk about um, jet. What's something uh, the, the what generally considered the worst car in history? And you were also going to talk about an aviation disaster, a crash, Ooh. an airplane crash. I watched Castaway the other day. Oh yeah, that's a good one. That's the one I was thinking. Yes, Castaway is pretty good. Do you know the ball that Wilson has yes, just Wilson, sold for right. like three hundred eighty thousand? Isn't Wilson the ball? Yeah, that's yeah. <clears throat> and the ball just sold at auction for like three hundred eighty thousand dollars or something. The one from the movie. The one from the movie. Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah, and it was it's one of those weird moments in life where I haven't I haven't even thought of the movie Castaway in twenty years since it came out or something like that. Really, since I probably first saw it, and then all of a sudden. Uh, we come across it and we start watching it one night and then the next day on the news, it's, you see that, you see the headline that the ball just sold. It's kind of funny. I think, um, Google is listening to your conversations. Google is. Yeah. Right. So it knows Mark needs to see this. Better hurry up. Right. Get him, get him in the news feed so he knows what's going on. Right. The updates on the castaway, you know, like prop department. Exactly. So in light of that, maybe we should start with yours. What do you think? Sure, we can do that. This mm-hmm. is, um, you know, so I get things from, uh, you know, a lot of other podcasts and outlets that I read. And this one I w- was kind of tipped off to by Outside Magazine online. Outside Magazine, and it yeah. turns out that this that this article came out several years ago, but I just saw it recently. So uh, it is about Eastern Airlines Flight 980. And uh, this is a flight that was leaving um, Asuncion, Paraguay, mm-hmm. and flying to Miami, Florida. Okay. And it has a, a scheduled stop in La Paz, Bolivia. Uh-huh. And La Paz, the, the airport there, this is, um, uh, I believe, the highest altitude airport in the yeah, world. Yeah, these, 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 the, you know, you, you can't just pack the plane full because you got low you know you're the air the uh thin air up there and you got a lot to think about when you're uh the runway has to be long long runway yep um now they're flying a boeing 727 which was uh built for shorter flights and smaller airports um this particular one could carry 189 passengers six across it's you know three seats on either side yep uh, single aisle down the middle. What year was this about? Because uh, 1985. 85 Eastern Airlines. Yes. I, can't even, I don't even know if I remember Eastern Airlines. Uh, January 1st, I believe. Wow. Uh, 1985. And um, the the flight left President Strassner International Airport in Asuncion at 5.57 for La Paz. Mm-hmm. And then it was going to continue on to Miami. Now, originally, I read that it had 19 passengers and 10 crew, so a total of 29 people on Jeez, this nobody's plane. Nobody's on this thing that yeah. holds 127 passengers. Definitely, you know, this is before modern air flight when they just pack everything yeah. to the gills. Well, and maybe if this is like a lot of, well, I think you described it as an air disaster, possibly. Yeah. Maybe it's for the best. Though. It is for the best. <laughs> no doubt about it. Um <laughs> There are, uh, there's uh, the pilot, Larry Campbell, co-pilot Ken Rhodes, and flight engineer Mark Bird. Now, I did, the, the interesting thing is, though, I just found an article 
you know, um, like basically, you know how Google will have a picture of the newspaper? Yeah. So I found a newspaper clipping from January 2nd, 1985. Oh, wow. That said that um, uh, there were 33 passengers. Oh. So this is the official... Uh, from what I've read in, in the more modern articles, Wikipedia, all have 29 total. It's weird people. the way that, yeah, there yeah. are always these little discrepancies between them. Exactly, yeah. When it's you're, a, when you're it's, and research. so there's eight Americans, five whom are Eastern Airline employees, seven Paraguayans, five are part of a extremely wealthy family, the uh, Madelone family mm-hmm. from um, Paraguay. Uh, nine Koreans and five Chilean flight attendants. And, uh, it's interesting. There's nine Koreans. I, um, yeah, I don't, I don't know exactly. There's a good reason, but it it just seems like a little bit sort of like, I can see why there are. Maybe they were all together. I mean, right. Oh yeah. I mean, maybe this is some, yeah, like some group, right. Some traveling group. Because otherwise, why would there be? Yeah. I mean, it's, I feel like, I mean, there's. There's only four nationalities on this plane. Right. American, Paraguayan, uh, Korean, and Chilean. Uh-huh. And all the all, all the uh, Chilean work for the airline. Most of the Americans work for the airline, so... You're probably right. There's probably some sort of tour yeah. flying through, yeah. Um, now, as you'll learn, though, there are, um, you know, some questions. Now, they, they were instructed uh, at a... You know, uh, like a little after seven thirty to um, descend from, I believe it was thirty five thousand feet to twenty five thousand feet. They expected to arrive one minute early, and once they were had descended, they were supposed to radio and say they had done that. Mm. Um, however, they were never heard from again. Mm. So that was the last communication. And uh, what happened is they crashed into Mount Ilamani which is 21,112 feet tall. So mm-hmm. it's a, and it, if you see the picture of this mountain, it's, you know, it's covered in um, ice and snow and it's got glaciers oh, yeah. on it. And it's, it's right there. When you see the skyline mm-hmm. of La Paz, it's this imposing mountain. It's right. just a wall yeah. in front of. Exactly. Um, so they were only, so they were 4,000. So it's, it's peak is 4,000 feet lower than they were supposed to be flying. And significantly off course. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, they're about 25 miles from the airport. Uh-huh. So not too far. I mean, it's pretty close. Now, what happened is unknown. Um, it's unknown why they veered off course, but it was possibly to avoid weather, yeah. bad weather. There were thunderstorms that night. There was fog. There was, you know, bad weather conditions. Mm-hmm. Um. Uh, it was only Campbell's second landing at this airport. And the way it worked was this is a notoriously difficult airport to land at. Usually what happens is you watch a video mm. about landing there. And then you do one landing with somebody else who's already done it. Okay. Then after that, you're good to go. You're fine. Yeah. You know how fine. to do it from here on out. Um, the thing is, though, is La Paz had no radar and limited navigational equipment. So you, as the pilot, are kind of responsible for yeah. figuring out where it is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The airport, El Alto International Airport, is the highest international airport in the world at 13,325 feet. 
And the runway is twice the normal length due to the speed you have yeah. to land at. You have to land at, uh, I can't even remember what they said, but it's like double the speed yeah. that you normally yeah, land at. Yeah, because you'll drop out of the sky right. if you slow down. Exactly. Yeah. Um, they also have to wear oxygen masks on descent, and they can't take them off till they get to the mm-hmm. to the gate. Mm-hmm. So it's it's not... You know, it's not normal. Mm-hmm. It's not yeah. like probably what you experience feet, I mean, anywhere else. That's gonna, there's a, there, I mean, your body's affected at that height if, if you're not used to it. So. Right. And um, the the people, uh, you know, the passengers, even when you pull up to the gate, or as it's depressured, uh, uh, the depre- um, depressurized, mm-hmm. after the pressure is is lowered to, so you've they pressurized the cabin. Mm-hmm. For flight and then they yeah. depressurize it but because you've left a place that's like yeah sea level or yeah. something yeah you are suddenly on top of a, a yeah. tall mountain and your system is just like you're depressurizing yeah. to a to a different pressure than you were exactly at, and then the plane would even be at yeah yeah, yeah. so it ends up um you know people people get nauseous yeah. they have headaches they feel winded uh-huh. um so it's, it's supposedly a pretty um, interesting effect, which is why they want the pilots to have oxygen all the way to the gate. That's so right. They don't pass out or yeah. get nauseous. Or right. Something. Yeah. Right. Makes sense. Um, now, um, it sounds like a regular airline crash, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, there was lack of equipment and mm-hmm. maybe a lack of knowledge, bad weather. Uh, but there were s- some questions, um, that remain and, and things kind of get a little, a little bit weird with um, some of the things to come. So within days of the crash, uh, a Bolivian, Bolivian team attempts to reach the wreckage, but a storm brings several feet of snow and uh-huh. avalanches. So they never reach the site. Right, yeah. Um, shortly uh, after, representatives from the U.S. Embassy, the NTSB, and the Airline Pilots Association tries to borrow a high-altitude helicopter from Peru since none of them are uh, in any way capable of climbing. Yeah. You know, to, to essentially the plane's at about twenty thousand feet, and they're looking I for think. they're probably looking for the black so any survivors. There probably isn't human remains and the black boxes. The black right? boxes, yeah. yeah. They want their, they want those recorders. Yeah, and there's uh, there's two. You know, there's uh-huh. the flight recorder and then the. Um, just kind of the 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 one that just kind of records all of the like all the cockpit I, the flight recorder, I think everything it's everything that's in happening inside the cockpit. All yeah, the there's a the cockpit report, recorder and a flight recorder. Yeah. And the flight one just like records altitude yeah. and location and stuff like that. Now that nowadays the the boxes are required to withstand. Uh, gosh, just a whole bunch of yeah, I imagine things. But back then they were not. Yeah. So we'll get to that. The the they were just like a boom box. Yes. Yeah, it like, it's, it's a little tape a... recorder. They have to they have to hold the three fingers down, <laughs> three fingers play down. record. Don't forget to push right. play record at the same time. At the same time. With a little Seiko or some sort of like Radio Shack. Right. Do you remember those with <laughs> the little re- handle on the end? The little speak yeah. single speaker. The tape pops up. Yep. Yeah, for sure. The best. That's how we all <laughs> recorded record. our favorite. With like music. a with like a sing with like a, a headphone jack with to a single plug that goes into your ears. You'll it's not even right. in stereo. You got a mono recording or whatever. This <laughs> uh, is in mono. Back then, black box recordings were in black mono. box recording. Right now, they the, the um but so you know they wanted this uh, helicopter. Now, um, uh, Peru. I believe it was Peru said we have 
a helicopter you can use high altitude? Well, Bolivia said, no, you can't bring a Peruvian helicopter yeah. into Bolivia. Right. It's it's theorized that they didn't want to be embarrassed by the fact that Peru had better helicopters. Sure. Yeah. So, you know, this just kind of starts feeding into questions about this this airline crash, right? Sure, yeah, yeah. You're starting to get conspiracy theaters, theories mm. are starting to grow. Do you think so? The, the, the seeds mm. are being sown. You know, it's it's funny because I think back then people might have said, conspiracy theories? No, but What's in that? today's day and age, we're like, of course, what else would Everything happen? Everything is a conspiracy <laughs> theory. Yeah, if some, if like, if, if, you, if you're shortchanged on, if you buy a coffee, it's a That's conspiracy right. theory at this point. Everything and if you get too much money back, you're like, Ooh, what is this? Does this bill have a tracking yeah. chip in it? Why did they give me $10 right, back right. when they only owed me 5 Damn, it's the, the deep state's watching the deep me. deep state, right. Um, uh, so eventually access was granted, and Bud Leppard, uh, chairman of the ALPA, which is the Airline Pilots uh, Association, was going to, this is very James Bond, Mark, he was going to uh, jump out of the helicopter at 21,000 feet. Wow. And then ski down to the site. No way. Now the, I want to have that guy's job. I think the president of the ALPA gets like the coolest shit. Well, a- they scrapped it because it turns out the helicopter cannot hover at 21,000 feet. Uh, so, uh, so Sikorsky. He was so bummed. And and then there was, bad, there was like, I think there was bad weather again. Oh, okay. Because he was going to so. have that. He was like, he, if he was anything like you or I, he'd be like, oh, I'll do it, man. <laughs> right. I'll let me do it. If I go out, I w- it was it was worth it. He's dreaming of pow. It's probably like completely windblown, totally. icy crust. You know how much this trip would have cost me <laughs> right. if I had to pay for it? Hella skiing. So Sikorsky aircraft ships an experimental high-altitude high helicopter, but they ship it in pieces. Uh-huh. And the mechanics sent to assemble it get altitude sickness and can't work on it for days. By the time they can finally work on it, bad weather moves in, they can't fly. Uh, it's a comedy of errors. Now, what what's odd is, okay, well, the helicopter's there. The bad weather will clear eventually, right? Yeah. There's no, like, record or statement of what, like, did they just go, oh, forget it, and they just, ship like... Ship it back. Right. Like, they took it apart week. and shipped it back. What I don't you, know. What, what, yeah, what, what did you do with the thing, you know? Right. Nobody could go in the interim. Why don't you just wait? It's, These guys are going to be able to put it together. It's <laughs> still in some hangar in La Paz, yeah. Bolivia, right? And, these, and, then, and then mechanics are their old, decrepit, right. like, waiting to be, like... Never never went home. One day, they're going to send us up on the... Now, uh, a Bolivian climber, Bernardo Gorachi made it to the wreckage two days after the crash. Mm. But he kept quiet about the expedition and any findings. Huh. That's that's, that's It took suspicious. a year for the Bolivian government to file a report, and it never mentions his name. Wow, okay. That's really suspicious. Yeah, it's yeah. really suspicious, right? Definitely sounds like a conspiracy. Yeah. Um, and two months later in March, there was a private Bolivian expedition funded by Ray Valde- Valdez, Valdez, yeah, um, an Eastern Airlines flight engineer who was originally scheduled to be on the flight, but made a change at the last minute. Um, the team got there. They yeah. found no wreckage and luggage, but uh, they found wreckage and they found luggage, but they found no recorders and no bodies. Weird. Like yeah. aliens took them. And no blood. <gasps> it is very, very sort yeah. of like... You know, Close Encounters. X-Files. Yeah. They mm-hmm. need to send... Um, Mulder and Scully. Yeah. Yeah. Big, big, big boots and... Right, exactly. Big jackets. 
the the cigarette smoking man was up at the crash site before they got there too cold to smoke in july a private expedition was made by judith kelly the wife of crash victim william kelly who was the head of the peace corps in paraguay um so one of the three americans who are not part of the didn't work for eastern right uh she spent three months getting in shape for the climb and hired Gorachi to get her to the site. She spent a day at the site and then descended. Basically, she just went. She would. This was not an investigation. This was a closing. The closure, you know, right? For, for, for she closure. went up there with letters from yeah. family and friends and read that's, them that's and then buried wow, them. Three, look at her! Yeah. Wow, what a powerhouse of a human being. Oh, and, and uh, from I, I found another article about that from 1985. Wow. And she's, you know, not a not a big woman. She's, you know, uh, small. And, you know, I think in 1985, they thought maybe small women were less capable than big women. Sure. I don't really know. Yeah. But, yeah, she, she was like, yeah, I'm going. And uh, so she went. Wow. Good for her. Uh, and, and when she got back, she uh, pressured NTSM um, to send investigators or NTSB to send investigators to the crash site. Um, and it finally, an official investigation was undertaken in ni- October of 1985 by the NTSB and the, uh, Bolivian Red Cross mm-hmm. led by Greg Fife. I find it interesting. I don't want to interrupt you, but I find it interesting that the, that so far everyone that you have mentioned, other than this one guy who kind of went up mysteriously, uh, we don't really know yet what his story was, but the other people you've mentioned, are just these like shoestring people who pulled it together and figured it out and went up there for whatever reason. And, and if correct me if I'm remembering this wrong, but there were members of like one of the wealthiest families in the country on the plane and they didn't fund an expedition. Doesn't it seem a little suspicious? It seems a little like what the heck? Right. I mean, these people could have easily afforded to get a bunch of pros flown in and send them up the mountain. Yeah. I mean, it, it seems very like maybe, you know, something was going on. Um, and perhaps there was. Uh, then, now, this is also not only the highest altitude um, airport, but it's also was, at least at the time, the highest altitude commercial aviation crash site in history. Oh, wow. Yeah. So they're not really, uh, you know, prepared for this. Yeah, right. Yeah. They're not supposed to crash into 20,000 yeah. foot mountains. Yeah. Um, the team hoped to find the, the recorders. Unfortunately, the expedition was nearly a disaster itself. Oh, wow. Yeah. We've so, heard of a few of those in our day on this show. Right, exactly. <laughs> I mean, it it didn't become... Um, there were no fatalities on okay, this one. So it, uh, it almost could have been uh, a help is not on the way. Ooh. Of its own, but could have had two a twofer a twofer right. <laughs> it's like it's like a subplot. Oh, we need to think. Okay, we gotta keep that in mind. All right, all right. So to, moving on to start, the porters delivered the equipment to the wrong base camp. Oh come on! And there there were only enough tents for four people, though there were seven on the expedition. Someone, who who had the clipboard? I mean, what <laughs> right. the heck? I mean, this is just the agency. 
you know, tasked with maintaining safety and U.S. airways, right? And you've got to, at least you someone in that someone in that group must have known how to climb a mountain. So at that, yes. so it, and and presumably a few of them. I and, I, I believe that um, uh, Greg Feith is, you know, how capable. Do you overlook this, right? They also did not deliver any stoves or fuel. So the crew, the, the, the climbing crew was able to make one pot of cold noodle soup for the entire crew, for the entire expedition. Oh, That's all they had. One investigator developed altitude sickness that night and another the next day. Mm-hmm. They found the part of the plane where the recorder should have been, but they were not there. Uh-huh. Maybe... Something's going yeah, on. Yeah, Mr. Right? What's-His-Name, who started, yeah. who, who s- s- snuck up there and That's snuck right. back and wouldn't and talk about didn't it. didn't talk about it. Yeah. None of the expeditions found bodies or or the recorders. That's Over time, weird. conspiracy theories did develop. That is really weird. Yes. And there's nothing living up there. It's not going to get, like, it's not going to get taken away by no. some, some scavengers. Or... It's not like the jungle. Yeah. Where yeah. it's, like, taken over yeah. by, there's leopards eating it. and Gone knows what days, yeah. Yeah, decays yeah. in 30 seconds. Yeah, yeah. Um, the theories include equipment malfunction. The Paraguayan mafia blew up the plane with the country's richest man on board. Oh. Um, Eastern Airlines was running drugs. Sure. And an attempted assassination of the U.S. ambassador to Paraguay, who was supposed to be on the flight but made a last-minute change. Wow. So there are all sorts of reasons. Yeah. They're all pretty good reasons, though. For well, sure, yeah. You know, I mean, who wouldn't want to, to hatch blow up the U.S. ambassador to Paraguay? Yeah, I mean, tell me about it. I mean, <laughs> yeah. many, how many times have I said that? You and me. Right. How many times have I said that? <laughs> That's SOB. Just in conversation. to blow him Just up. Just in casual conversation. That's My God. right. I'm not really going to do anything about it, but I mean, you know, that can people out there with like a real grudge. And there were elements, you know, uh, of these theories that were plausible. Yeah, sure. Uh, five members of the prominent Paraguayan family, the Madalones, were on board. The wife of the U ambassador was on board, though he was not Ooh. because he got off. Maybe it was him. Right. Maybe he was just like, this was, you know. It was a, a good run, honey, but yeah, uh, it's uh, over. The secretary and I have been got something on the side that's right we gotta get you out of the way right you never know right you never know um and eastern was indeed running drugs they were running drugs yeah yeah as 22 eastern baggage handlers were indicted on shipping 300 pounds of cocaine per week it was pretty much the heyday of the baggage handler right i mean it's when a baggage handler couldn't make like 1.5 million a year and there was probably also the heyday of cocaine yeah yeah, late seventies, <laughs> early eighties, baggage handlers making you know making like a, a like an executive salary, shipping cocaine, shipping drugs across the world. Um, as, as Stacy Greer, the daughter of flight engineer Mark Bird, said, "quote It's the only plane crash that has never been properly investigated by the NTSB, and then a few le- few years later, Eastern goes under." Oh. And Eastern Airlines did indeed declare bankruptcy in 1989. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think it's to, you know, not have the the drug running investigated. Oh. No, it's it's not. It's not. They just went bankrupt. And they just couldn't afford it. I mean, as soon as they couldn't ship drugs anymore, right. <laughs> just realized this. All, all the baggage handlers quit. Their profit margins. Like, <laughs> we're not making enough money. Their profit margins were way too slim. That's right. 
this was working out fabulously until 1986 when all the bag of handlers got here. In 2006, Bolivian Roberto Gomez heard about plane parts being found at the bottom of a glacier. Oh. And having heard Enrique Madalone carried $20 million in cash on board, oh, yeah. thinks it's possible there may be money to be found. Gosh, it's always about the money. So yeah. he and his team spend three days at the glacier. They find uh, neither money nor bodies. Wow, still, still no, no bodies. bodies though, right? That is, this is still, this is still very, you know, yeah. very X Files right here so far. Uh, now, George and Jen, no black boxes. Yes, where no, they were supposed to be no black boxes. Wow, George Jen, author of uh, Final Destination Disaster, mm-hmm. theorized that a bomb exploded during the flight depressurizing the cabin and sucking all the bodies out before the plane crashed. But that's very odd because the pilots are usually like in a separate section, right? Yeah. I mean, and they're usually, and they're usually, they should be strapped in. They should, they shouldn't get sucked out for by depressurization. Right. No. Yeah. I don't think they're just like, they were at 25,000. I don't know. I don't know how at the, I don't know. Uh, Yeah. It doesn't sound plausible to me. Not really. He also thinks Bernardo uh, Guaracci mm-hmm. was hired by Eastern or the NTSB to find and destroy the recorders because they needed to hide the fact that Eastern was running drugs for President Reagan. Reagan comes this into yeah. this now. Yeah, we I know mean, a lot about great? Reagan. I mean, Reagan's like Reagan's a puppet propped up by, you know. I mean, this guy's uh, this guy's got his finger in every pie, doesn't he? Now, just think about, and this is I'm taking a like a little tangent here. I'll come right back, but um, imagine the a web of conspiracy theories we'll be able to weave into our future. Help is not on the way. Episode, say yeah. ten years down the yeah. road from now. Mm-hmm. I just can't wait. Anyway. Oh yeah, absolutely. This is going to be fun. Yeah, we're going to start hatching ideas tonight. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> going to get. Do you have enough yarn? Can we yarn start getting hands? yarn. Going to start buying yarn. Yeah, I put some yarn on my. Uh, you my need Christmas a bunch of list. Bunch of uh, maps. That some yarn. articles. Just cut out random articles from newspapers. What do you want for Christmas? Hey, Dad, is, did I read this right? You want maps and yarn for Christmas? Yes. An old newspaper. Do, an old newspaper. Newspapers. Yeah, seriously, and a couple of couple of copies of uh, Catcher in the Rye, if you would. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> Jen wondered who paid Guarachi, but he never apparently asked because somebody did eventually. And Guarachi say, says that Royce, I'm not sure how to pronounce this, Ficti or Ficht, F-I-C-H-T-E. The problem with these old articles is nobody tells you how anyone's name is pronounced. Yeah, yeah, there's no I cannot sort. find it out. I tried to find like a, a Wikipedia page that might give you the little, yeah. nothing, yeah. nothing. But anyway, he was from the U.S. Embassy and he... Uh, got Gorachi onto a climbing expedition to go to the crash site. Uh-huh. So all this author had to do was ask, but he didn't. He never contacted the climber to ask him anything. He just came up with all these theories. It's so we've heard this before. The right. classic, like, nobody asked. Right. Why won't he tell? He's not telling. He hasn't said anything. <laughs> Has anybody asked him? Oh, we didn't think of that part of it. Right. And then you ask the guy and there he's like, yeah, I, I've been yeah. here for 20 years in the same yeah. exact apartment and no here. one's ever contacted yeah. me. Yeah, just waiting, wondering why no one's asked. <laughs> so he, uh, let's see, he did indeed, though, find no bodies, but he did find blood. Um, the next day when supplies arrived, unfortunately, after, uh, uh, the next day of this expedition, you know, they got up there. 
They found no bodies, but they did find blood. But then the next day, their supplies never arrived. Mm. So I suppose porters are supposed to be coming. You never know. Like, it, were the porters told, uh, don't bring them? Sure. Or was this, is this just incompetence Another, like the previous one, yeah, right? Yeah, there's just been so much incompetence, I mean, yeah. and if you're a porter, you're like, I don't know, man. I don't get paid much. I just do what they tell me, yeah, right? right? And yeah. so if somebody doesn't give you good instructions, maybe you're just like, yeah, I was at the bar. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Why, do, why would I Why would I go so above and beyond for these people? they had to descend. On the way down, they found footprints around their base camp, and they assumed they were being monitored. Mm-hmm. Um, at base camp, he was detained by the Bolivian military, and they searched him and, and interrogated him, and he was also threatened not to speak out, and so he kept quiet. Yeah. So that's why they he never, never asked. Never, never so, talked yeah. with mm-hmm. He kept quiet. He doesn't know why. They yeah. they threatened him, but they did. Uh, and so now, this is where we get to the article I read. Yeah, which is pretty cool. So there was a whole backstory to, though to this article. But so in 2015, this guy Dan Futrell, who is now the um, uh, he is uh, let's see, he's the. CEO of the uh, of a foundation. Um, when I think of it all, we'll let you know. Um, but he comes, so he's kind of like he's a former uh, marine, or mm-hmm. he's a former. I I shouldn't say marine. He's a former soldier, mm. but he kind of misses the the adventure aspect, yeah. the 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 aspect where you you push yourself and mm. do things that are you know outside your your comfort zone. And so he comes up with these kind of like fun little adventures and he is going uh um over a list of missing flight recorders oh wow yeah and now this accident at the at least at the time is the only uh one that's not found that is on land so the rest oh, are, okay. you know, they crashed in the yeah. ocean or you whatever be a diver and you're right. gonna have to like search the ocean floor it's gonna be able so to he uh proposes to his roommate isaac stoner uh, that they should take a trip to Bolivia and find the recorders. Mm-hmm. So they decide to do that. And uh, they, they're not really climbers. So they're just right? going to, yeah. They're just going to do it anyway. Um, so the two roommates, uh, you know, they kind of like divvy up the, the duties of what they have to do to make this expedition Make sure they have happy. enough tents. Right. Even though they're not climbing. I just remembered it's the Pat Tillman Foundation. He's the CEO of the Pat Tillman Foundation. Oh, okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Okay, yeah. Um, But anyway, so they contact a uh, a climber uh, named Robert Rauch. A R A U C H. Mm. Could be Rauch. Rauch. Yeah, I always pronounce that Rauch, but I know it's Rauch. Who said he could get them to the crash site? Uh, He said they'd need to uh, acclimatize in La Paz, but. Uh, the two roommates decide they don't have enough time because they only have two weeks of vacation. They're taking vacation. Right, yeah. their vacation. Yeah. <laughs> this yeah. is before he's a CEO of the Pat Tillman Foundation. They're like, they're roommates. They've got regular jobs. And he I, can't. I like, I, I love the, 
that sort of the the mindset of like, well, I got two weeks this year. What am I going to do? I'm going to go f- search for a flight recorder. Right. I have to train to get there and all this other stuff instead of just like, well, maybe we'll go to like Senior Frogs in, you right. know, I don't know, like wherever. Like, let's go, right. Well, let's go down to Mexico yeah, and hang out in Cancun. Cool and... Let's go to Cancun. That'd be fun. We could hang out on the beach. I'm going to climb a mountain to find a black box to solve a mystery. I, that's I like this that's, guy. That's a pretty cool vacation. I mean, honestly, I I, I appreciate it. I I can um, totally um, get where where he's coming from mm-hmm. and what he, you know why why he thinks that's fun. And they do think it's fun. That's like this is to them. This is fun. Yeah. At least to start, they do realize later that there's a little bit more resting on this than just an adventure. There are human beings that were affected by this. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, now. Since they can't acclimatize, they buy altitude tents Mm -hmm. and they sleep in those at home. Oh, wow. Yeah. And, um, you know, not being climbers, they they start, you know, doing lots of pull-ups and they're hiking the the stairs at Harvard Football Stadium and things like that to try and get, you know, with backpacks and everything. Um, They they get prescriptions for Diamox, which apparently helps the body absorb oxygen. Uh, And... Uh, Rauch says uh, that they can learn climbing on the mountain. All right. Yeah. Just, you know, he just well, teach him on the mountain. I mean, giving him a little bit of credit here because that's pretty irresponsible for most people. But he's, he sounds like he's a soldier. He sounds like he's smart. I'm assuming his roommate is similar, a similar sort of background and whatever. I'm in in great shape and, and capable. There's I would imagine if he's risk. inviting his roommate to go climb a 20,000 foot plus yeah foot mountain that he believes he can do it right? and they're and they're obviously taking a huge risk and 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 it's somewhat irresponsible but but at least so far it's only irresponsible to their own lives and they're not gonna like you know yeah you you, you get to play with your own life a little bit they also end up uh getting put in touch with peter frick wright who wrote the story for outside so the he ends up going on the trip too the guy who writes the article also ends up going oh, wow, on the trip okay. uh and jose lazo uh bolivian cook so they got a cook they got a mountain guide, and they got three inexperienced people. They're doing okay. Yeah, they're doing all right. Better than some. Now, what's amazing, though, so, you know, the, at this point, though, so they, um, they uh, realize that the stuff has started to, like, fall over a cliff. So it's not necessarily so, at the height of where it impacted the mountain. So that's right, because it's thawing, and the thaw, I think, starts to slide, right? Well, and, and the uh, the glacier also oh, is, you know, like a conveyor yeah, belt bringing yeah. things down. So yeah. stuff has been dropping over this cliff. Wow, okay. Um, they After driving a beat-up 4 by 4 and a 45-minute hike at altitude, they reach the wreckage. Mm-hmm. So it's not like climbing Everest, but it's, mm. you know, it's still yeah. quite quite the undertaking. Yeah. Um, the the debris from the plane now is kind of spread out though over like a four uh, over a, a full square mile. Mm-hmm. So it's a pretty big. They had plans about how they're going to search. You know, we'll do this pattern and that pattern, right. and then they just kind of realize that, oh, this is just a giant, you know, field of boulders and yeah, you ice, and they just kind of start wandering around mm-hmm. looking for things. And uh, shortly after they begin searching, they find a human femur. Wow, so they were the first ones to find something in so quickly. Yeah. And after more searching, they find five more body parts. Oh, jeez. Yeah. So, you know, maybe aliens did not abduct with all the human beings. It's possible. 
I mean, they, they, they find a lot of debris, including animal skins, which uh, presumably was like an illegal trade uh, between uh, South America and Miami with animal skins for um, clothing and bags and all sorts of probably counterfeit stuff in you know Miami mm-hmm. or something like that. Um, they don't find anything resembling recorders until the last day of searching. In which case they start finding uh, like orange colored metal, which is I, I even though it's called a black box, I guess the black box is not black. Mm, it's no, like orange because right. they want you to find it. Yeah. Um, they also find a roll of magnetic tape that they hope is from one of the black boxes. Oh, okay. Yeah. These so they less... find this this thing with like uh, wiring harnesses coming out. Um, but in 1985, as I mentioned, the the recorders didn't have the same requirements. So now it has to uh, withstand 2,000 degrees Fahrenheit, Mm. uh, 20,000 feet under the ocean, uh, and uh, an impact of 3,400 Gs. Oh, my gosh. Which seems like, how could you ever hit that, right? titanium or some crazy stuff and multi-inches thick. Probably. The box was aluminum. Mm -hmm. It was pretty... pretty, This uh, one's just aluminum. This this is a paper. It's like a lunch bag. Like a cardboard box. Cardboard box. Tape with cellophane (laughs) tape on it. Just like like with the the lids, like, you know, like like offset and shut. Folded in on each other to shut it. (laughs) They just like, what's that? They used to call it... That's what they used to call the brown box. The brown box, right. The brown box. (laughs) Um, you know, initially they, they said they didn't care if they even found the boxes, but now they're feeling a little more, um, a little more pressure to find it for the victims. What they found on the last day was labeled C K P T V O R C D R cockpit voice recorder. Ooh, yeah. Um, it's bright orange with wires on one end and made of aluminum. They now what's crazy is they decide not to turn it over because they figure if they turn it over in Bolivia, no one's n- ever gonna see this, thing. right? Yeah, this is yeah, it's a surefire way for it to disappear forever. Mm-hmm. But by doing so, they've broken the law. Oh, Apparently, yeah. you're not allowed to take uh air airline crash uh debris outside of the country of the crash. Interesting, they get on. A, they probably get on a commercial flight with this, like in their right. bag yeah, or exactly. something like that. You know, what's that in your bag, sir? I mean, they must have had to check it because, right? I'll, you know, it, it's not like today where they're like, yeah. open up. What's these wires? That Even in eighty five, someone would have been like, dude, what's that in your ba- in your shoulder bag, my man? <laughs> I don't think so. I just I don't know, you know. Now, what it, it turns out though, so they 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 try to get it the tape analyzed, yeah, but that ain't, that's uh, not easy they're to do, told that the only way they can get it analyzed is if Bolivia requests it. Oh, and the NTSB is the only ones who can actually analyze it. The NTSB has to ask, and or Bolivia has to ask NTSB to analyze it. Gosh, that seems like a lot of red tape. Yes, um, and uh, Bolivia doesn't like the U.S. at that time because. Uh, they accused the U.S. of plotting a coup in 2008. They also forced uh, the Bolivian president's land, plane to land in Austria in 2013 because we suspected Edward Snowden was on board. Do you remember that? <laughs> yes. <laughs> so they hate us, so they're not gonna. They're not. They're not. Uh, they're not willing to. Snowden. 
<laughs> when the outside article was, was published in 2016, the Bolivian government had ignored all contact attempts. They're not responding to this yeah, at all. They're, they're like, F you. The conclusion the team came to, though, was that it was likely that the landing is difficult in La Paz. Sure. The weather was bad. The airport lacked radar. Yeah. There were language barriers between the flight crew and the air traffic controllers. Yeah, yeah. And the training of the crew had been minimal. Was this Occam's razor? Yeah, exactly. That's that's basically that's what these these guys are really, like. You know, like we could keep poking yeah. at this thing, but it's just a, it's just is what it is. It's I a mean, it's a crash. There's a lot of real as many great reasons there are to have blown it up for because the prime minister might have been on it. There's also really a lot of great reasons why it would have just hit Crashed. a mountain, right? Yeah, and and the only requirement, uh, you know, was as I mentioned to watch a video and then fly at one time yeah. as like yeah. a co-pilot or something. Yeah. Um, and uh, the uh, let's see, they were asked to quote uh, use a dose of pilot type skepticism when dealing with the air traffic controllers. <laughs> that's like me. To, that's like that's like that's like you giving me directions to your house, right? And 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 in doing so, I have to watch a video from my house to your house, and then I get to drive it once with you sitting next to me, and then if I don't do it alone next time. We're all dead. Right, yeah. And, <laughs> and, could and basically, I have to tell you that if you, like, open the window and ask the guy at the corner for some help, to to not necessarily trust him. Don't necessarily trust the and guy. And he's yet. also he speaking a different language. the same language. There is a guy to help you, but he doesn't speak the same language. He's not entirely sure where you're going. And he's yeah. not trustworthy. And he's not necessarily <laughs> trustworthy. Yeah. So, uh, uh, you know, the the equipment the pilots had wasn't great. The onboard navigation system steered the plane off course. Mm -hmm. Um, The other system, which is uh, VOR, uh, stands for Very High Frequency Omnidirectional Range, relied on local radio transmitters that only identified where the transmitters were, not where the plane was. So the pilots then had to say, okay... There's a transmitter over there. There's one there. We must be about here. They got to right? guess where they triangulate themselves. That's against right. The transmitters. Yeah. All along with storm, it's it's possible, you know, even likely that they just smashed into a yeah, mountain. They smashed into a mountain. On uh, now, what this is crazy. So you know, like basically, they left with no answers. Yeah. Other than they think that they just crashed. But after this article came out. On February 7th, 2017, the NTSB released a statement that what had been found was the cockpit voice recorder. Hmm. Um, And the flight data recorder pressurized container assembly. Mm -hmm. Both of which are exterior pieces of the flight recorders that surround the data recording mechanism in either device, but do not hold the data themselves. The promising spool of tape turned out to be three-quarter-inch U-matic videotape that, quote, when reviewed, was found to contain an 18-minute recording of the 1996 Trial by Treehouse episode of the television series I Spy, dubbed in Spanish. <laughs> so it was just a video VHS tape, like a Betamax right. tape or something like that. Somebody on, somebody on the plane was, had a recording yeah. of this... He's carrying this, carrying this movie with him. That's right. Oh, so they, this, it's still the only. Well, 
it's still an unfound set of voice recorders. Oh. Nobody nobody knows for sure, but you know, I mean it kind of sounds likely that it just crashed. It's also, yeah, it sounds like it just crashed. I mean, there are always and there are good reasons for conspiracies because right. there is this family on board and there is the prime minister possibly on board and who knows and at the time people could look around and seen all the people who are mad at him and but again, and maybe someone someone there's someone out there who realized who got away with it. Right. But more than likely it's well, sad crashed. as it is, and hopefully it gives some closure to the families of the people. But uh, I don't know. I would, I would, I would hate to be in their situation. Yeah, no to kidding. To always be wondering, you right? Know? And someone, and every now and then, a new piece of data comes up. Like, oh, really? No, I didn't realize right. there was this faction that was really angry at the prime. You know that he'd been. It sounds like from from the article and and outside, it did it did provide some closure to people. That, like they they got to see that like this is, you know, uh, you know the daughter of uh, of the the one um, crew member, mm-hmm. you know, got to. She was young when it happened, and then by the time she saw that stuff, she she had an understanding of what had happened and what her dad was doing and why there wasn't a body for the casket yeah, at the funeral sure. and all these things and to see these things and this is like. This is this is a part of you know my dad's last thing. A lot of mysteries in this one. Yeah, um, we should uh, we should we should check out the next one because uh, it's totally different. It, there it, there is transportation involved. Yes. Aside from there are no black boxes. Um, uh, there there is nothing in this one. Well, I mean, yeah, yeah. There's it's 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 this this one's a good one. This one's very very. Um, very dissimilar to to yours. What kind of transportation are we talking it's about? It's a car. It's a car, a car. Kevin. It's hmm. in fact not just a car. It's actually generally considered the worst car in Ooh. history. It's the Yugo. Are you familiar <laughs> with the Yugo? Do you remember the Yugo, Kevin? And in fact, Mark, talk to me. I just saw a Yugo the other day, and I sent you a message. That's right. That I saw a Yugo in an apartment complex down the street, it's and all- it's in great shape, which I think is pretty insane right it would like it would almost have had to have been buried you know basically someone was like it's not worth buying or selling i'm just gonna bury it and then someone found it years later and maybe <laughs> dropped like an old vw engine in it and went ah, you know what i'll do the job i guess you I'll know in today's day and age with the um crazy price of used automobiles it's probably twenty thousand dollars it's probably twenty thousand dollars <laughs> i looked at i actually did look up and it wasn't today's prices but someone did say that um uh, today you can get one for around six to eight thousand dollars, and you can get a. And, but you probably want to buy a, buy a spare parts one along with it. <laughs> right, buy two of them. But but that's inflation right there because the thing brand new is only four. So let's get into this thing a little bit. This is the Yugo. For anyone who's not familiar with this car, it's 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 a tin can. There's really no other way to explain it. It's really just a tin can. Um. It was a it was a car uh, that was marketed for sale in the U.S. between 1985 and 1992. Um, <clears throat> this guy he's this he's this American businessman named Martin Bricklin, and uh, he had founded Subaru of America. And he was apparently like this really outgoing kind of kind of a basically just the used car salesman of used car salesman who basically imported new cars. That was his deal. But he was like a he was a powerhouse of a of a of a buyer and seller and never ever ever you know you punch him and he just get back up and keep trying to sell you his his, his, sort of his way um he brought in subaru into america and he had um also imported fiat into the u.s um he also created his own car for sale which is called the bricklin sv1 
You heard of it? Yes. I, I had, never heard of it. I had a friend who whose dad had one. Really? Yes. We Did thought it ever... was the coolest thing. It had gold wing doors, Mark. Did it? Yes. I saw photos of it while researching this, and I was not... I just looked... looked it up because you said Bricklin. I was like, is this the same guy? Uh, the the guy. guy who created the Bricklin SV1 also... Imported was... the Yugo. <laughs> yeah. Now... You tell me if I'm wrong here because you you sound like you saw one in person, but the photos I saw, the Bricklin uh, SV1 looked a lot like an eighty like an eighties Ferrari, kind of a Magnum PI Ferrari, crossed with a little bit of a DeLorean. Maybe oh yeah, with like a Pinto, not a Pinto back end, but sort of like a, a Datsun back end with like a. Uh, 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 it was a little clunky looking. It didn't seem as sleek. It almost looked like it was trying too hard. Yes. I'm- I was going to say, it's like is a kids at a, of uh, maybe, say, middle school age. Oh, yeah. We were like, whoa. Our friend, yeah. I think his name was Kale, and he would get dropped off at school. And we were like, whoa, did you see Kale got dropped off in his bricklin? Yeah. And it was so cool. But when you look at it now, you're like, I mean, it looks like a car that would have been used in, say, some sci-fi film in the 70s of an example of, you know some futuristic thing and it it's like an amalgamation of the front end is kind of corvettish a little bit but then it's got gull wings and the bumper looks like it was an afterthought it like <laughs> don't looks like an afterthought it's got, it's, they just they strapped on a bumper right. from, a, from the from a Datsun. they're like this is never gonna pass like our safety hatchback. test we gotta put a bumper in here how do we do that here and then the yeah the back end is like a hatchback that it's just kind of ends it just ends it just sort of slices right. off like it's there's no there's no plan at the end they just ran out of ideas right. towards the back of it they started with the front this whole thing reminds me of uh um because you're talking about being a boy a young and i'm not i, I could i could pretty much care less about cars right. we talk about them once in a while and i don't even know why we do because right. they, they find moments of them fascinating but the truth is i'm more fascinated by the fact that people actually care i i think i think cars are are, are a good part of american stories they are it's a really that's a good point they you know are. like like your your story about breaking down and you know trying to get out of town yeah and yeah just beaver beaver yeah. utah totally exactly yeah, yeah. someone shot my rabbit Right. <laughs> in front of the Tesco or I mean the the, the Texaco. <laughs> so it reminds me of so when I was a kid I used to collect car cards. I was I was uh uh living uh my dad was stationed in Germany and I was living over there and he and we would the kids and I we'd have these decks of cards. They were they didn't have they weren't playing cards, they just had information. Information. And one side was like a you know, the the uh, uh whatever that that would be like this car would be one of them and there'd be like all sorts of Lamborghini cards. And then you turn it over and it tells you about it. Right? It tells you about it. Yeah. And so I and, and when talking about this when you were mentioning it, it reminded me of do you remember do you know they called it the Wolf Race Sonic? It's Wolf Race Sonic. Look no. this thing up. I don't know why I remember the name of this thing. I thought it was so rad. People, please Google this car. The Wolf Race Sonic. It looks like a bad idea like it looks like a reject of the batmobile like like a like a production designer's reject of the batmobile it's got like four wheels on the in front in front four wheels and, in front and the front is kind of like the cheesy 70s uh, Corvette. Like, it looks like a Corvette. Right? It looks and like then, a Corvette. It's like and Corvette the back summer. End almost looks like a Corvette, and the middle looks like a Batmobile. The middle looks like a Batmobile. It's such. A, and like, why did you put four wheels in front? How does that make any sense? It doesn't make any sense. How do you turn? Okay, right. Anyway, back to the story here. So he makes this car, and Bricklin is looking for a low cost every man car for the American market, and he wants to counter like so. 
think about it, 70s, you see some of the early 80s cars, you ever see footage back then, you have these big boat of boats of cars, like they're gas guzzling, they've had gas embargoes, they've had problems. These things, like you open the trunk, you know those cars, back then you open the trunk and you could fit you know, you could fit an entire, I don't know, you could you could stuff a small water buffalo in there. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's insane how big these trunks are. The cars are enormous. You had those bench seats in the beginning. So he's kind of going like, these things are heavy. They're right. all metal. They're really, ex- they've become really expensive because of inflation. So he's looking for an option to import uh, an everyman car for the market to counter this. He finds a manufacturer called uh, Zastava, which is a state-owned company in communist Yugoslavia with a car called the, the Kor- I don't know how to pronounce it, the K-O-R-A-L, Karal, Kor- I don't know how you yeah. pronounce that in Yugoslavian. Essentially, it's a generic version of the Fiat 127, which is a car that was already over a decade old. So they're already basing this entire thing on ancient technology at this point, because of course, even cars are moving, right. technology is moving fast. And uh, it's going to be—he's going to bring it over to the U.S. And he's going to market it as the Yugo, but he, of course they're going to be assembled in, built and assembled in Yugoslavia. So they make over 600 changes to the car uh, to get it to bring it to the American market, and they—and I can't imagine that they. This is sort of like a factoid. 600 changes. I mean, that could could have meant like, you know, like they, they're going to put a cigarette lighter in you know the the cigarette whatever like you know flip down thing or whatever and there's also the ashtray and all sorts of things it's probably not significant changes there were a few emissions changes and things like that to to comply but probably a lot of it was just like oh the windows got to be able to roll down um so they make over 600 changes to the car and it's supervised by this team of quality experts from great britain go in there and they're really on top of it, right? Okay, well, the car starts at 39.90 for the basic GV great value model. <laughs> so that's under $4,000. Under $4,000. I bet I guarantee you they marketed it like that. Um, other models had more features and uh, in 1988 they did uh, introduce a convertible. Um, the primitive, this primitive uh, compact Yugo was the least expensive car sold in the U.S. at the time, and I, I think ever sold in the U.S. <clears throat> and it becomes the best-selling European import within the U.S. in the U.S. within three years. I mean, people are just like four grand. I mean, right? You can't I mean, get a price. A I mean, if I, if like, say I'm gonna just buy my kid a car, totally. A Yugo. Absolutely. Right. You, you're gonna drive it to school. You're gonna drive it to yeah. sports practice. That's all you're gonna do with yeah. it. Yeah. You know, et cetera. So in 88, uh, Bricklin sells his interest in the car company for $20 million. Dang. Now, that's one of those inspired. Yeah. <laughs> a little bit of inspired. There was a little inspiration in, in his world at that time because I don't know if he'd have gotten the same money a couple of years later. Do you think he's laughing his way to the bank? Had he's to have like, been. Had to have been. He's like. Yeah. Yeah. With his hands. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. He, uh, so. So contrasted with the car's initial, like this atmospheric rise the car has had in the U.S. market, um, its fall is just just absolutely equally impressive. It's just glorious in its in its in its fall because it's ugly, it's cheap, it's poorly engineered, and this shine of this low price tag that everybody's kind of like, oh, it's so cheap, you know, under four thousand dollars. It's the buyers start to smell a rat they realize why it's under four thousand dollars right? yeah buyer beware kind yeah. of thing so low this low quality um so low quality essentially low quality remains the chief reason why the cars you know as far as the car's initial downfall but 
Although the factory, which also that factory that that manufactured the car, also uh, made machine guns, um, and was noted for workers climbing into and out of cars with greasy boots, smoking while working, drinking brandy on the job, and tossing perfectly good parts into the dumpster. Apparently, <laughs> this car's demise is a little bit more complex than that. Although that's really the big sticking point. So, so you know, a lot of people kind of hoped the car. Or it, maybe even in hindsight, sort of thought it could have been this great um, bridge to help relations between communist and capitalist governments. Um, but those were dashed um, because of these, like the cultural divides, just could not be 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 bridged. Um, this the state-run car company um, really just could not understand this the this super fast-moving market. Um, and, and I mean, marketing sort of like ideas and, and concepts of the American market and the complex sales structure of commission based employees at American dealers, they just didn't get it. They thought they were being scammed. Right. Know? They didn't understand that the way this was all playing out on the American side. So this is a car. Um, it's it's got a two thousand dollar wholesale price tag. Um, it's got communist origins. Uh, so that's a pretty good. That's a good margin. Yes, it's a great margin. Yeah, that's a like. Oh, it's a huge. You're margin. doubling your 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 cost. Doubling your cost. Yeah, yeah right right away. Yeah, it was, a, it was it was a huge margin, and it sold really well right at the beginning. It looked really. It was the best selling car European car in America at the wow. time. I think, it, I think at its peak, it sold about forty eight thousand in a year. Which, if you're only making two grand per, it's not like you're. Right. That's true. You know, your profit margin's huge, but the total. Amount yeah. is not huge. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's like it's 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 sort of like um, um, Dan Aykroyd's like, how do you make money? Volume, volume. You well, know? so I, I was just looking because I was like four thousand yeah. dollars. That's amazing. The average car price in nineteen eighty was seven thousand. So it's almost half the yeah. It's, yeah, I mean, so it's it's considerably less, but it's not at that point. It's like not as cheap as I thought. Yeah, because right. it's, it's like, like twelve grand in today's or... dollars. Like the median new car price is like forty something thousand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So if you were to say, "Oh, it's a thirty thousand dollar car," yeah. I'm not buying a thirty thousand yeah. dollar car for still my kid much. to drive to school. Yeah, it's still way too much. Yeah, it's still yeah, too yeah, much. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I don't know how it really compares. And I don't think it compares in the same way. Like I don't think a seven thousand. I think it's not like it's not like cars have gone up in inflation. They've gone up in price because of like, I oh. mean, they're. Yeah, because it has heated seats and yeah. airbags all over the place, Everything. and navigation and cameras. So and, much stuff yeah. going on, going in, and, and 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 everybody's salaries have been raised by like I quadrupled. Mean, and basically, they were go karts with a roof and doors. Back that's exactly then. what it was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it was basically a golf cart. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. So it's so considering the fact that this is like a, it's a car with a a two thousand dollar wholesale price. It's got communist origins. It's being sold in Reagan's America. Uh, uh, but with even all of those like super implausible credentials, it still couldn't get to 60 miles an hour in under 14 <laughs> seconds. And how many seconds? Okay, listen. One, <laughs> two, three, 14 seconds. There's like minimum it took to get, to, and that's on flat land. Now keep in mind, and it had a top speed of 86 miles an hour. So, and by the way, okay, think about that car now. You saw one down the hill here, and you've probably seen them when you were younger. You're talking about like a little tin can. Oh yeah, at 86 miles an hour. That's the top speed. You you you're probably you should probably be thankful 
and maxed out at 86 miles per hour. Yeah, and I mean, right? there's no going up a hill. Because what happens if you hit a wall yeah. going 100 in a Yugo? Yeah, no. Yeah, you go through the windshield That's and right. into the wall, like, immediately. Yeah, you're go, you go... Even if your seat belted in, the seat goes with you. You go you go past the hospital directly to the cemetery. Right, you go. The, yeah, so... So, the, uh, the car... The car... So, I watched a couple of videos of people, like, doing modern, sort of, like, fun takes on the car and you know they find you can find people who have them still people like them i mean you know they're i mean there's something to be said for a simple car yeah. you and i both agree that hey absolutely um but uh but this one was this one guy who just like you know he's driving he's like you know what okay all right i'm driving it it's moving you know and then he starts to go up a little bit of an incline and wherever he's doing amps <laughs> or whatever we're not talking mountains we live right. in the mountains we're not talking about we're talking like Oh, it's a little inclined. Yeah, and he just starts to, and it's just like he just watches the 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 speedometer just sort of go down as he inclines. So that's that's this is this is this is brand new out of the box. These things were like this. How many? Do you know how many horsepower? I probably could find it. I didn't take any of those like hard statistics down. It's a four cylinder, of course. I'm looking it up. You do that. (laughs) So, so here's a further list, quick list of some of the car's faults. It fared poorly in crashes and had a very low survivability rating. <laughs> Not so well, you're selling you're selling me already. Despite its small size and low weight, it had extremely poor fuel efficiency. It came in last in emissions test. Parts falling off while driving uh, were common. And I literally I'm mean, this is no joke, and I've told this story for years. It's actually why I thought of the idea for the for the for the show, Kevin, is that um I have a personal experience with this car. <laughs> my friend I, I grew up in Maine and my friend Todd Shields had one same reason we're talking about mom and dad were like Todd needs a car I'm sure and he's like what if we get we can't afford much what can we get what can we get for you know a hundred bucks a month or whatever they got him the Yugo he had this brown like, sort of tan colored Yugo the doors were paper thin et cetera, et cetera. well when we grew up in rural Maine, nowhere, it was like just pitch black, no street lights and stuff. We'd be driving down the road. He, I'm in the passenger seat. He's driving. He hits a bump hard enough. Headlights go out. <laughs> Completely out. How do you get him back on? You hit another bump. <laughs> no joke. You we, He weaves in the dark. Slow, immediately takes his foot off the gas and kind of weave, remembering the road ahead, hoping to hit an, hit another bump. Weaves to try to hit another bump so the headlights would go back on. And I have been in that car a few times when that's happened, and thankfully every time the headlights we got. It's a little terrifying. Well, we're luckily living in luckily and and not because it didn't it wouldn't happen to every bump. It would sometimes be a big enough bump. And, but um, but rural Maine, you got the frost heaves and stuff. The roads are not right. so great all the time. So you're going to hit a bump eventually. Maybe at that time, you just thought it was funny. Well, right. we would, there were times when it would go out, you know, five, six times in, 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 a, in a short drive. I mean, you're, just, you're literally driving, trying to get the lights back on all the time. It was amazing. So I have this personal experience with this. So um, the technical director of Car and Driver magazine calls it, quote, inferior to every other car sold in america this is at the time <laughs> then saturday Night live gets on board jay leno letterman they're starting to crack jokes even the simpsons got some jabs later on in the, about into the yugo soon even the school kids are cracking jokes and one i found with gem online you'll love this kevin it's this is at least the yugo had heated rear windows so your hands would stay warm while you're pushing it <laughs> <laughs> 
You know, you know. I remember now. I was, I was just wondering. The SNL Yugo skit was you, called the Adobe. Oh, we gotta look that up. I gotta see that. I didn't look it's it up. It's made out of clay. <laughs> That's great, Adobe. That's great. So a Philadelphia. So it's coming. Obviously, clearly, this is coming to like an end. And 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 if you you can actually look at the car sales from eighty five to ninety two when they sold in the U S. And it's just like. 3,500 first year, boom, like 16 second year, 46, 36, and then it keeps going up and up, and then it just meet, then it just dies like, off like the, cliff. the stock market. You know what I mean? It just goes off the cliff. So a Philadelphia car dealer at the time um, begins to offer, a, literally, apparently I read this, a free Yugo with the purchase of a Toyota <laughs> in a promotion aptly titled the Toyugo Sale, <laughs> and apparently few Toyota buyers opt, opted to take <laughs> the Yugo. The, the Yugo They're like, no, I'll just take the Toyota. I'll, I'll just take the Toyota. It's not, right. it's not worth it. So um, then, of course, like talk about like sort of putting all the nails you could possibly put into the coffin. Um, there's a civil war in Yugoslavia in, oh, yes. in 1992. Yeah. And uh, and Yugo America goes bankrupt. And there's a trade embargo leveled uh, by the UN against Serbia, which cuts off all supply of Yugo parts. You can't even get parts for the car. So from its peak in 87, where the Yugo sold over 48,000 cars in 1992, it plummeted to 1,311 cars. Uh, Later, uh, I want to say this is like early 2000s, Car Talk, the fabulous, fantastic, fun show Car Talk. Tip and tap. Yeah. Tip and tap. The Tappet Brothers. The Tappet Brothers, yeah. Yeah. Uh Click and clack. Click and clack. The Tappet Brothers. Brothers. Yeah, it's 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 such a great show. Um. Later voted the Yugo the worst car of the millennium. <laughs> and I can't and I can hear them laughing hysterically as they delivered that that punchline. You know, I I did look up too because I wanted to know the horsepower. Yeah. The Yugo forty five had forty five horsepower. Oh, the the G V great value. The 45. Yugo fifty five had fifty five horsepower. The fifty five was the one that could reach eighty six miles per hour. So I don't know what the 45, the 45 could do. 45 may not even be able to right. go like 56, 78, 74 now, miles an I hour. had a Ford Escort with 88 horsepower, and that was pretty bad. Oh, man. So imagine almost half the horsepower. Trying to climb a hill. Yes. Like, all I can see is like a hill. And imagine, okay, uh, I, I, uh, I mean, it... <clears throat> I mean, the, the, the early VWs, six seventies VWs were strong, were power powerful than that. I was in a VW a thir- 1930, Gosh, I can't remember the year. A friend of mine had a beautiful old VW bus, beautiful, crazy old, like like soft top rollback. Right. Oh yeah, nice. way back. We went up Vale Pass with it, and I think we were going about seven miles an hour for a good portion yeah. of it. Like I probably could have walked along. Yes, I've the been car. up Monarch Pass in a in a VW bus and um, up. Loveland Pass and many other passes in the Escort. A lot. And certainly with the VW, it looked a lot cooler than you would have in your Yugo. Oh, yeah. yeah. And the Yugo is going slower. Totally. You're getting passed by the VW bus. So the car, essentially, if you wanted the car, the idea is just, you know, if you still want to get one, and they're out there, you know, it's going to be fun. You got to get a you got to get a caddy. You got to get a second car for parts because you're just not going to get them anywhere. It's not, doesn't, or you, you know. I, I'm going down the street. We had a knock tomorrow, push. and if I see it, I'm taking a picture. You got you got to put. You should and you should post it. And also, you should put. We need to put a little uh, uh, a little note on the on whoever's windshield it is, so we can get a hold of them, and see what their story is. They had like kind of a cool 
uh, emblem or something, right? It was like a, it was a Y, but it had a couple of um, like the upper sort of the 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 left right sort of slanted parts of the Y at the top were I think stacked or something like that. Yeah, it's kind of cool. Yeah, and it was the the one that's down there was like this little blue hatchback thing. Man, I have to go check it. It's right there, bottom of the hill over here. Yeah, I'm gonna have to look that thing I think up. So I think yeah. that's where it was. Anyway, so that is uh, this is our this is this is us this week. I think we've uh, we've exhausted our uh, our transportation stories for the week. I, I you've you've gotten me now though interested like how this dovetails straight into uh, the civil war in Yugoslavia. Oh yeah, I mean that that whole thing is like a, a rabbit hole you can go down. Yeah, yeah, it's that, so yeah, you that's, could spend that's, the next month. That's, that's one of those Wikipedia everything. pages that just goes on and on. I've has done like, that. Yeah, and I don't remember any of it. I never After remember spending it. weeks and weeks of reading about it. I don't remember anything except that it's kind of horrific, and people still would like run to work with their in their dress clothes, their work clothes, like a suit. Carrying a briefcase, well, people tried to shoot yeah. them mm-hmm. with assault rifles mm-hmm. from a quarter mile away. Yeah, and you're just trying to go yeah. like to your day job. Yes. Yeah, yeah. It's a, uh, it's a, well, it's a topic. It's a topic. Yeah. I don't know if it's a topic for help is not in the way. Well, maybe we can find something to get into it with. Let's let's look for some stories. But yeah. the Yugo is certainly a, uh, it's an anomaly. It's super funny, and anyone who doesn't know about it. I mean, really, you need to get some Yugo stories out there. I bet you could probably go on some forums and find some fabulous, like, yeah, I was driving down the street and, like, literally my like my left rear driver's wheel passed me. I, I do remember driving. I don't know that it was Yugo. I'm just going to assume it was. This sure. was. I think this was, it was this, like it's going to like put all dump all car blame. <laughs> I don't know, man. I remember this one time. It must have been a Yugo. Weird. I think it was the Lodge Freeway in Detroit. It's like you know one of those below grade things. Yeah, they got the walls on the side. It's basically like a canal. Yeah, you know, with yeah, yeah, no yeah, yeah. water. Uh-huh. Yeah, uh-huh. and uh, we pass a, pass a car, and it's a little hatchback. So I'm assuming it was a Yugo. Could have been anything, right? But the one the re- one of the rear wheels was like wobbling back and forth really uh-huh. bad. Like sh- the whole car was shaking because the rear wheel was shimmying so much, and we were like, "Ah, look at that!" And then the next thing we knew. The wheel came off and the car was like, you know, the rear axle kept dropping down and hitting the ground sparks coming out and the wheel just went off and just crashed into the off. wall. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, just sort of just sort of like heads off on its own, meandering yeah. away. I don't know where I'm going. Yeah. It was definitely a Yugo. Had to have been a Yugo. Had to have been. Blame it on the Yugo. Right. Well, this is uh, Help Is Not In The Way with Mark Dustin. And Kevin Ballman. And uh, those are our stories for the night. We'll see you next time. We'll think up some new ones. Yeah. For sure.